It's good to see you guys tonight. Um, so we have been in a series called Stories of Ordinary People Who Followed Jesus, right? And um, it's been good looking at different types of people who followed Jesus because I think sometimes we get in our minds this idea that only the people that follow Jesus have it all together. Like the people that follow Jesus in the Bible and or now like, they're the good ones. Like, they're the ones that get it right. And so I've appreciated looking at different types of people because I think we can all fit into one of these or probably several of these categories. Um, and tonight, I'm, I'm grateful for this one. Um, tonight, we're going to be talking about um, the outcast. So we started, first week, we talked about the skeptic, people who have questions, people who um, don't just automatically believe everything that they hear, but have some questions about who this Jesus is. And we talked about, uh, last week, we talked about the insider, the people that, like, grew up in church and had all the Sunday school answers, and then Jesus is like, hey, you're not quite, there's, there's something you're missing, that you have to be born again, like you need a new life. The right answers isn't enough. And so tonight we're going to be talking about the outcast. Um, and, and this is the big idea that I want you to hear from tonight. That um, what if God knew all of your junk, all the stuff that you're hiding from people, all the stuff maybe you're even trying to hide from yourself, and he still wanted you? What if he knew it all and he still wanted you to follow him? So, we're going to be in John chapter 4 tonight. If you have a Bible, crack it open. There are extra Bibles in the back. It's not weird at all if you want to get up and grab one of those. And we'll have it on the screen. And I'll just tell you, we're going to read a lot of text today. This is a, a cool story, and there are lots and lots of layers. And tonight, we don't have enough time to talk about every different nuance and thing in this story. Um, but it's a great one to now come Jesus back to later if you're um, intrigued by it. More disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus. All right, John chapter 4, starting with verse 1. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and he went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a, to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the, wall, the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, Everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. 
I don't have a husband. Wait, did I skip a verse? I don't know. I, um, Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said. For you've had five husbands, and the man that you're with now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Okay, if you didn't pick up on this, there's a lot going on in this. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of like hidden kind of language in this back and forth. But here's what you need to know. This was a scandalous conversation. This was a scandalous conversation. And here's one reason. The first reason it's scandalous is because she was a Samaritan. So Samaritans um, were bitter enemies of the Jews. Samaritans were originally Jews who had gone off and had intermingled with non-Jews. And so they were kind of considered half-breeds. They were considered to be um, racially inferior and, and also religiously inferior, that they were kind of heretics because they had not only intermingled racially but also with some of the religion. Um, So it was scandalous that he was talking to this Samaritan. It was so bad um, between Jews and Samaritans that I have a picture of a map here. So um, they're down in Jerusalem, and they're going to go up to Galilee. And Jesus says, I need to go through Samaria, which is a straight line pretty much, right? Except you see that little dotted line out to the side, the gray dotted line? Most Jews would take that trip all the way around, several hundred miles out of the way, to go around Samaria so they wouldn't have to interact at all with a Samaritan. That's how bad it was. Um, So the fact that Jesus said, we've got to go to Samaria, was kind of weird. The fact that he's talking to the Samaritan, that was scandalous. The second thing that was scandalous is that she was a woman. Women in this culture were not on the same level as men. And this was a big deal, that they were having a conversation in private. Um, So that made it scandalous. It made it scandalous because she was a moral outcast in her culture, right? So even among Samaritans, she was an outsider. She was an outcast. Um, You know, it's interesting that it said that they were there at noon. And um, a lot of people have talked about this if you've read this story before that women in this culture were the ones generally who would go to the well. They would go to the well to get the water for the cleaning, um, to get the water for cooking for the day, but they're not dumb, and so they're not going to go at the hottest part of the day. The women would go in the morning when it was cool, and so it was kind of this social gathering that women would get up in the morning, and they would go to the well, and they would all meet there, and the kids would be running around, and they would be talking and probably gossiping and telling stories and laughing. It was like this social thing that they did in the coolness of the day, in the morning or the evening. But the woman is there at noon in the heat of the day. And we can kind of assume that perhaps she didn't feel like a part of that group the group of women that were all buddy-buddy, hanging out in the morning, that she didn't really want to see those women. And as we see the conversation unfold with Jesus, maybe we understand why, right? That maybe some of the gossiping, maybe some of the stories that were told with the women around the well had to do with her and the men she was with um, and what she was doing with her life. So she was a moral outcast from her own culture. And Jesus, we see him reach across 
racial, um, gender, religious, cultural barriers to talk to this woman. And he begins the conversation with a Samaritan woman and starts talking about this different kind of water that he has. And it's a living water. And so when she's finally convinced that this stranger is offering her something better, she asks for the living water, and Jesus turns the conversation to address the fact that she's been married all of these times and that she's currently living with someone who she's not married to at all. Rude, right? <laughs> like, I mean, in our culture, we'd be like, that is so judgmental. Like, Jesus, why did you have to do that? We're living in a culture where um, it's often hard to see things as right and wrong. Like, it's frowned upon. If we look at somebody else's lifestyle and say, that's not okay, that that's, that's a bad decision, that that's wrong. We're um, in a culture where, um, you know, people that will draw those lines are usually called judgmental or bigoted um, or hateful. In our culture, truth is subjective and situational, and every person has the right to create their own personal version of the truth. And so we see this from our politicians, we see it in the media, we see it in celebrities, we see it everywhere on a daily basis. More and more people think that their thoughts or beliefs or actions should be accepted as both valid and correct, even if they run counter to God's moral truth. That's the kind of environment that we're living in now. So, if everyone gets to decide what is right or wrong for themselves, then anyone who corrects them or calls them out as being sinful is seen as intolerant or hateful, right? So, is Jesus being intolerant and hateful in this context, in this conversation with this woman? Is he trying to humiliate her by bringing up her past? Is he trying to shame her? When my daughter Sophie was um, in sixth grade, she was on a bike, and I suspect she had a phone in her hand, but we're not going to talk about that. But she was on a bike, and um, she hit a pebble in the road and flipped over the top of her front wheel and landed on her face and her leg, like skidded on her face. And it was gruesome. Um, it was really, really gross. Um, so before that we could decide whether or not to take her to the hospital, we had to clean it up. Like, we had to take a look at it. And there were rocks in there and dirt and um, all kinds of stuff. And so we had to, like, rinse it, and we had to, like, pick out the pebbles, and we had to put the antibiotic on there. Um, there is nothing worse as a parent than having to cause pain to your own child, even if it's for their own good. Would it have been better for me as a parent to not clean the wound and just like stick a Band-Aid on it and go, that's probably fine. Just pretend that all the junk wasn't like mashed into the open wound and hope that it just got better on its own? Jesus wasn't shaming her. But he wasn't willing to just slap a Band-Aid on her life and tell her that it would be okay. He knew that her pattern of sin wasn't giving her life. And he wanted to give her something better. He had access to this living water springing up. 
This made me think about um, when I was growing up, we would go to the Current River canoeing. Anybody been to the Current River, Missouri? It is beautiful. It is a beautiful, beautiful place. And my dad was a pretty avid sportsman, canoeer kind of guy, and so he knew this river really well. And he would um, take us to these springs. There would be a few places where you could find a fresh water spring. And what would happen, I mean, the current river is pretty nice. It's not gross and muddy most of the time. But you would come to a freshwater spring, usually kind of like back off the main river, kind of in a little cave area. But um, you would see, like, the water would turn all of a sudden, and it would be this bright blue. It was beautiful, and it was so clear. You could look down and see down to the bottom, and you would see, you could see the spring coming out from the ground underneath the water. Um, it was the most beautiful water, and it was so cold. Inevitably, we did this every year, inevitably one of the kids would be gullible enough to jump out of the canoe into the, the fresh spring, you know, and then come out like, because <gasps> it was so, so, so cold. I think about this, this kind of water that Jesus was offering her. Like, that's what I have for you. Pristine, refreshing water. The reason that he wants us to follow his commands and live consistently with what is moral and right is because doing so will result in our happiness, in life, the kind of life to the full. John 10.10 says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Not just like half-life, not a mediocre life, not like an okay, like I'm cruising, I'm coasting, but life to the full. And so he's trying to help her see that she's been asking for the water that he has. She's been looking for that water that he has, but she's been seeking it in the wrong places. And she's been settling for cheap substitutes to this water. Her relationships have been the thing that she's used to fill those empty spaces. A substitute for what Jesus wants to offer. And there are all kinds of substitutes that we settle for, right? I think just like her, relationships can be the thing. If I can just have a person who is there all the time, a person who completes me, um, we use sex as that, especially in a culture like this, that that is the thing. If I can just have this intimate moment with somebody, then I will feel fulfilled. Academic success, getting recognition for being the smartest or the best. A cheap substitute would be popularity, being, being popular on this campus, being part of the party scene where all the action is, or financial security, or pleasure, things like food, or drink, or pornography, or just adrenaline, being, having adventures or having some sort of excitement or thrill all the time can be something that we think is going to fill that, that part of us that's really desperate for living water. Um, when I, I told you guys a few weeks ago that uh, my family moved to Hayworth, to the middle of nowhere, we lived on a farm. We weren't farmers, but we did live on this farm, and we had a well, and we had well water. Um, the well water, everybody told us, my parents told me, that it was perfectly fine to drink, but when, you would, when it would come out of the faucet, first of all, the whole, like, the whole, um, glass would be cloudy, like you, you would fill up a glass and it would be cloudy. Um, so you could drink it, but it just 
looked like it was going to be chunky. Um, the option that I tended to go for was I would pour myself a glass of water and then I would sit it on the counter and I'd walk away and like go brush my teeth or get ready for school or whatever. And then what you hope would happen is that like the sediment, like the iron deposits and things, that they would just like settle to the bottom. And then you could, I'm not going to do it, but you could like kind of drink around it, right? Like I'm just going to drink the top part of the water. Um, yeah. I think uh, instead of a spring water, we take a bottle like this and all of our junk, the sin, the stuff that we're trying to substitute for living water, we're like, well, it's not so bad. Like, I can, I can drink around it. I can kind of pretend that it's not there. Just close my eyes. My mom, you know, other people say that it's fine to drink. But our sin, our disobedience, the things that we choose apart from God are the things that, like, sink down to the bottom. Instead of trading it in for the good stuff, we just go, I'm just going to pretend that this gross stuff isn't here. I'm going to try to drink around it. So this woman had been drinking dirty water and just trying to not think about it. I think that that's true because I know that I have done it myself. Jesus never talks about sin in order to shame us. But he talks about sin in order to show us a better way. He never talks about sin in order to shame us, but to show us a better way and to offer us something better. Jesus had to call out her sin because we have to identify it and get rid of it if we want the living water instead. I can't hold on to this and say that it's just great and take the living water too. We're going to keep reading and finish this out here in verse 21. Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is here now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Then the woman left her jar, went into town, and told the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. I read um, some time ago, and I can't remember where, where I heard it, but it really stuck with me, this idea that the best thing that could ever happen to us was if one morning we woke up and all of our sin was printed on the front page of the newspaper. The best thing that could ever happen to us is if all of our sin was printed on the front page of the newspaper. That sounds horrifying, doesn't it? But I think that this woman, she recognized something about freedom. That freedom comes from admitting our sin. From letting go. 
Freedom comes when we no longer have to hide, when we no longer have to make up stories, when we no longer have to wear masks, when we no longer have to cover things up. Freedom comes when we identify and admit our sin. Why else would she so eagerly go to people and say, hey, this is great news. I met this guy and he told me all the crap that I had ever done. Like he knew all my junk. It's because she had found the truth where freedom comes from. Freedom comes from letting that go. How would it feel to know that God already knows the stuff that you've been working so hard to hide? He already knows the stuff that you're trying to ignore, the masks that you wear, what you're trying to present to other people that's not exactly true. He is very aware of the junk that you're dealing with, just like this woman. He knew exactly what was going on in her life. Yet God still loves us, and he still calls us to follow him. He still says, I want to offer you something better than that. I want to offer you living water. We're on a campus with hundreds of students who are posing and pretending and posturing. We're living in a culture where people put on like happy faces and we post stuff on social media and yet in private people admit that they are the unhappiest that they have ever been. What would it be like to be free from that? What would it be like to live authentically? This invitation tonight is for us, just like the Samaritan woman. If you're tired of hiding or pretending or faking it, it's exhausting. And God already knows it, and he's not here to shame us, but he wants to offer us something better. And there are two ways that we want to respond tonight to this. The first way is simply by getting real about our sin. Like getting real about the stuff that we just kind of brush over, that we just kind of ignore at the bottom of the bottle. Um, Really identifying stuff in our lives that is sin. And sometimes that's kind of hard and hard to to know, like, well, is this sin or is it just a bad choice? And I can get into semantics and kind of talk myself out of things. There's a, a passage in Galatians 5 I want to look at because it's just one, one of several places in the New Testament that gives us kind of an idea. Like, here's some things that are going to get in the way of living water. So Galatians 5.19 says, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those are the things, those are not things that God um, wants us to be a part of, and so he offers us something better. And so what I want to do first is we want to identify what is the sin in, in your life, Like, what is the stuff? And let's be real about it. And so you have a piece of paper. Everybody at your seat had a little piece of paper. If you have a writing utensil, you can can write it down. Nobody is going to see this. This is for you only. But I encourage you to be real about it. 
So the first part is acknowledging it and identifying it, calling it sin instead of a struggle or a mistake or a temptation, but calling sin, sin. Write down what you've been substituting for living water. And the second way that we need to respond as we identify sin is to let it go, to trade it in, and to say, God, I, that's not who I want to be. That's not what I want to try to fill myself with and to, and to trade that in for living water. And so um, the worship team is going to come up now and we want to do that letting go in kind of a symbolic way tonight by taking that piece of paper, and um, they're going to sing a song, and it's going to just be a reflective kind of song. And, and while they sing, I want to encourage you and invite you to come to the back of the room, and there are two basins of water. And um, we want you to just put the paper in the water and, and see it dissolve, see it disappear. Um, and as you do that, before we do that, I'm going to pray with you. Um, but just to take seriously um, the forgiveness that God offers, that it's as simple as that, of confessing our sin to God, that, um, that it disappears, that he removes it from us, that he promises that. Why don't you bow your heads with me and we'll pray. God, I thank you for the Samaritan woman and the hope that she gives me. Um, that you can know all the worst things about us and still offer us living water. You still offer us abundant life. You still want the best for us. And God, we just pray this together as a community. We, we pray, Lord, would you forgive us for the things that we've written down on this paper. The things that we have settled for, Lord, we want your living water instead of this. And we want to obediently follow you. Amen.